Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, August 4th, 2023. It will be breezy and humid today with a shower and thunderstorm later in the afternoon. Tonight, the low will get down to 70 with rain, another thunderstorm. On Saturday, the rain continues, but it will be warmer in the low 80s. On Sunday, the outlook is beautiful. It will be almost 80 again, partly sunny and partly cloudy. A special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. In Thursday's numbers game, for the midday drawing, we have numbers 7, 3, 7, and 2. The evening drawing numbers were 1, 6, 7, and 6. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 6, 8, 27, 28, and 31. For Wednesday's Powerball drawing, we have numbers 23, 24, 33, 51, 64, and a Powerball of number 5. And finally, for the Mega Millions drawing that was held on Tuesday, we have numbers 8, 24, 30, 45, 61, and the Extra Ball of number 12. The lead story today is headlined, Getting a Close-Up View of Winyard Vineyard Wind Farm Environmental Group sponsors trip for state legislators, local officials, activists, and others. By Heather McCarran of the Cape Cod Times. Out past Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, where waves swirl and crash spectacularly against sandbars in the shoals, the ocean rises and falls around a massive, bright yellow structure that one day soon will serve as the foundation for a turbine tower that will spin wind into power. Affixed to the shallow floor of the continental shelf, it is the first and northernmost in a group of six now rising out of the ocean, the others appearing beyond it as distant silhouettes, each separated by one nautical mile of open water. Standing on the upper deck of the Captain John and Son II, one of the vessels in the Captain John's charter fleet, State Representative Jeffrey Roy, Democrat from Franklin, on Wednesday morning leaned on the railing, pulled off his sunglasses, and squinted as the cylindrical constructions came into view, as if to ensure they were real and not a weird refraction of light on his lenses. It's amazing to see this here, he said, and took out his iPhone to snap a photo of his first in-person view of the Vineyard Wind One offshore wind farm, a joint project of a Van Grid Renewables and Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners during a tour of the in-progress site. The Environmental League of Massachusetts sponsored the boat excursion, which included several state legislators and their staff members, as well as local officials, environmental activists, a Van Grid employees, members of the media, and others. The foundational structure the group viewed are part of what will eventually number 62 wind turbines planned for the 806 megawatt Vineyard Wind One project, the first commercial-scale offshore project in the nation, now under construction about 23 nautical miles south of Martha's Vineyard, out where the island is a barely discernible smudge on the horizon. 
For Roy, co-chair of the State Joint Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy, seeing the beginnings of the wind farm, including the remotely operated offshore substation that will relay wind-generated power to the mainland via submarine cables, is the realization of a decade of work. It's also the start of addressing worrisome climate change, as well as building energy independence and developing new jobs. When I look at this, I think of the Hoover Dam that was built back in the 1930s to power the western states. This is our generation's Hoover Dam, right here off Massachusetts, Roy said. A fight to save the planet. Until now, the effort to develop a robust, clean energy source in waters off Massachusetts has been an idea existing on paper, first discussed in the early 2000s. It's the first time that the abstract has become real, said State Senator Michael Barrett, Democrat from Lexington, co-chair of the Utilities and Energy Committee with Roy, who also joined Wednesday's tour. This is what Massachusetts needs and what the climate needs, Roy said, not to mention being a big deal for the nation and a testament to what visionary thinking can do. Barrett agreed, saying it's an important endeavor in the ongoing fight to save the planet. To create wind, clean wind energy, he said, is literally the work of our lifetimes. State Representative Kip Diggs, Democrat from Barnstable, said he too was impressed to see the vineyard wind site taking shape. It's amazing being the first ones to do this, he said. Though he recognized there are issues to work through with other Avangrid wind projects presently in early permitting stages, he said the vineyard wind project is an example of how offshore can be a benefit combating the climate problem, providing jobs, and bringing new revenue to Barnstable as a host community to help pay for needed infrastructure like sewers. Susanna Hatch, Clean Energy Policy Director for the Environmental League and Regional Lead with New England Offshore Wind, was also on the tour Wednesday. She said the organizations have been advocating for offshore wind for a long time, and their members are excited to see work underway. We support responsible development of offshore wind and are really working to make sure offshore wind not only helps address the climate crisis, but also provides needed jobs, she said. Sagan Sai Otan, a Vangrid chief operating officer for offshore wind, said the project's turbine blades and tower parts are already in New Bedford and will soon start getting loaded onto barges and transported offshore for installation. The first ones will be erected before summer's end and will begin generating power as soon as October. Final commercial operation will be by mid-2024, he said. $4 billion price tag. It hasn't been an easy financial road to hoe. Oitan acknowledged that most offshore wind pro-wind pro projects are challenged globally right now, facing supply chain issues, rising costs tied to the war in Ukraine, inflation, rising interest rates, and burgeoning worldwide interest in offshore wind development. Avangrid has two other projects proposed in the water south of the vineyard. Its 804-megawatt Park City wind project associated with Rhode Island, with a proposed landing at Craigville Beach in Barnstable, and its 1,232-megawatt Commonwealth wind project eyed for landing at Dowses Beach in Barnstable. Because of unforeseen cost increases, the company elected to end its previous procurement contract for Commonwealth Wind 
in favor of rebidding the project under new terms, though permitting is continuing. The company is also hoping to work with Rhode Island on new terms for the Park City project. For the Commonwealth Wind project, Oitan said, we're hoping to bid for the next solicitation in Massachusetts. Roy said the state has a very large procurement coming up in January with up to an additional 3,600 megawatts up for grabs. We're hoping we'll get multiple bids for the next round, he said, noting other companies showing interest include Equinor and Orsted. Opposition. A number of Barnstable residents, particularly in the villages of Osterville and Centerville, have raised concerns about plans related to the Commonwealth Wind and Park City Wind projects and questioned the continuation of permitting even while new contracts are sought. The ad hoc group called Save Greater Dowses Beach opposes plans for the Commonwealth wind cables to come ashore under the beach, saying the estuarine environment is too fragile, and Centerville residents are concerned about bringing cables under the Centerville River from the west end of Craigville Beach. Critics also argue for a more consolidated approach to routing cables under the seabed for upcoming projects and question the wisdom of continuing to develop offshore wind without first ensuring the power grid is ready to distribute the power. Roy said he's had concerns about the delays in offshore wind development, but he's confident the companies will get back on track. He also acknowledged concerns about the power grid, which he agrees need improvement. For that reason, the legislature has formed the Transmission Planning Working Group and the Grid Modernization Advisory Council, to take the steps necessary to modernize our grid, Roy said. Part of the solution, he said, could be the Cape Cod Canal Peaker Power Station. We're being proactive in addressing the problem, he said. Ancient Whale May Be Biggest Animal Ever by Doyle Rice of USA Today. Move over, blue whale. You've been demoted. Scientists have discovered what they say could be the heaviest animal that ever lived on Earth a gigantic ancient whale that may have been two to three times as heavy as the modern blue whale. The newly discovered whale, which has been given the Latin name Parasitus colossus, or the colossal whale from Peru, lived about 39 million years ago. Though its roughly 66-foot length doesn't break records, its weight does. The study estimates it weighed 375 tons, or about as heavy as 35 school buses. Blue whales are still historically large animals. Some can grow to more than 100 feet. Parasitus colossus was possibly the heaviest animal ever, said study co-author Alberto Coloretta, a paleontologist at Italy's University of Pisa, but it was most likely not the longest animal ever. A portion of the whale's skeleton was discovered recently in southern Peru, according to the study published Wednesday in the British journal Nature. This finding challenges our understanding of body size evolution, J.G.M. Thewissen and David A. Waugh write in a companion article. In fact, the findings suggest that the trend toward gigantism in marine mammals may have begun earlier than thought, according to the study. Whales, dolphins, and porpoises belong to a group called cetaceans, which includes the largest known animals that ever lived, the two scientists write. Until now, it had been assumed that the blue whale holds the record for the largest body size. But the estimated skeletal mass of P. colossus exceeds that of any known mammal or aquatic vertebrate, the authors write in the study. 
It was led by Eli Amson, a paleontologist at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. The whale was modeled from a partial skeleton, which includes 13 vertebrae, four ribs, and one hip bone. Each vertebra weighs more than 220 pounds, and its ribs measure nearly five feet long. The massive fossils are unlike anything I've ever seen, Coloretta said. According to the study, the whale is a member of the Basilosaurid group, a family of extinct cetaceans. It not only was extremely large, but it also had an exceptionally heavy skeleton relative to its body mass. It substantially pushes the upper limit of skeletal mass in mammals, as well as in aquatic vertebrates in general, the study says. The animal was a slow swimmer that probably lived close to the coast and fed near the bottom of the sea. The findings show cetaceans had reached peak body mass an estimated 30 million years before it had been assumed. The features of P. colossus were fully adapted to an aquatic environment. Further research is needed to answer more questions about how the animal and how it lived. As the Wisson and Waugh note, the importance of this fossil goes beyond the documentation of a previously unknown life form. Ipswich 72-year-old drowns five days before court date by Graham Crewinghouse of the Cape Cod Times. Authorities in Ipswich announced Thursday that a 72-year-old man had drowned in Plum Island Sound the previous day. The man, Richard Collins of Ipswich, had been scheduled for an arraignment on Monday in Barnstable Superior Court on charges related to a fatal motorcycle crash last summer. Collins was found by workers at the Ipswich Bay Yacht Club, Ipswich Police Chief Paul Nikas said in a release, around 3 p.m. on July 26th. His body was retrieved from the water near the Yacht Club's dock by the Ipswich Police Marine Unit. Collins was transported to Beverly Hospital, was, was pronounced dead that day. Collins seemed to have been swimming at the nearby Clark Beach, according to Nikas. His address in Great Neck, Ipswich, is just a few blocks from the Yacht Club and the beach. The death is under investigation by Ipswich Police and the Essex, Essex District Attorney's Office. Glenn Johnson, a spokesperson for the office, said Wednesday the investigation is still ongoing, but it initially appeared to be an accidental drowning. While we await final autopsy and toxicology reports, we have no indication Richard Collins' death is suspicious, Johnson said, adding that there is no search for any outside suspects at the moment. Collins was charged last August in connection with a crash in Marston's Mills that killed an 18-year-old motorcyclist, Sam Needham of Centerville. Collins's criminal charges included homicide while driving under the influence of alcohol and leaving the scene of a personal injury or death. He also faced a civil case for negligent operation of a motor vehicle, which is a civil offense if alcohol is not involved, filed later in the fall. As part of his release agreement in Barnstable District Court, Collins was prohibited from drinking alcohol and from driving. According to court officials, a grand jury indicted him on May 26th, at which point Collins's criminal case was moved to Barnstable Superior Court. The criminal case was dropped this week by prosecutors as the defendant is now deceased, court officials confirmed Wednesday. Court records do not show any changes as of Wednesday to the civil negligence case. 
The plaintiffs in that case are Needham's parents, Jennifer and Matt. A Great Father Centerville Man Killed in Topsfield Crash Remembered by Zane Rasek of the Cape Cod Times Valky Sergio Costa Silva was an avid guitar player who loved to play old country music. But looking for more opportunity and a better life, he didn't hesitate to sell one of his treasured instruments to raise money for tickets from Brazil to the United States. He eventually settled in Centerville with his family working for a local tiling company. He loved Cape Cod. He always used to say how much he loved Cape Cod and had a plan to live here forever. He never thought this would end so shortly. His sister-in-law, Adriana Greenwood, told the Times in Portuguese through interpreter Michael Messinas. Costa Silva, age 44, was killed while coming home from work on Friday when he was thrown from a van during a three-vehicle chain reaction crash on Interstate 95 in Topsfield. He was originally from Rio Vermelho, a Brazilian municipality in the state of Minas Gerais. Greenwood has started a GoFundMe campaign to raise money to send Costa Silva's body to Brazil. As of Wednesday afternoon, the fundraiser has raised slightly more than $17,000 out of a $30,000 goal. He is survived by his wife, Agonilza Souza Silva, and his two children, Kavini, age 16, and Emily, age 15, who attend Barnstable High School. Through the interpreter, Souza Silva said the two met while in Brazil and were married for more than 16 years. She said she struggled for words to describe how wonderful he was describing him as always brimming with positive energy and a very humble person with a big heart. He was also an adept drawer, she said. People used to come to him and ask him to do projects because he knew how to draw and was extremely artistic, said Souza Silva. He was extremely smart and very talented. Anything you asked of him, he'd do it. A Roman Catholic, Costa Silva belonged to St. Francis Xavier Parish in Hyannis, according to his daughter Emily. My father was a great father. He was always extremely attentive to me and my brother, extremely attentive to us, said Emily through the interpreter. On Friday, July 28th, Costa Silva was one of three passengers in a Chevrolet Express van traveling south on Interstate 95 in Topsfield at about 4.17 p.m., when it was struck by a Chevrolet Impala attempting to avoid hitting a 2008 GMC Acadia SUV that had come to a stop in front of it, according to a statement from Dave Procopio, spokesperson for the Massachusetts State Police. Upon impact, the van left the roadway, slid across the grass median, and rolled over one and a half times, ejecting Silva and another passenger, a 30-year-old man who suffered serious life-threatening injuries and was brought by medical helicopter to Boston Medical Center. Silva was pronounced dead at the scene, Procopio said. A third passenger, a 53-year-old man, address unknown at this time, was brought by ambulance to an area hospital with serious injuries. A 32-year-old Yarmouth man who was driving the van suffered minor injuries and was taken by ambulance to an area hospital. Procopio said authorities don't know why the SUV came to a full stop in its lane of travel on the highway. After the collision, the SUV pulled over to the breakdown lane and the driver and passenger ran into nearby woods. 
This prompted a search by several troopers, state police tracking dogs, and a state police helicopter. Police captured a 30-year-old Lynn man who had been a passenger in the Acadia. He was charged with interfering with a police officer. He eventually posted bail and awaits a court date. Police are still looking for the driver, also a Lynn man. Procopio could not be reached for comment about any update in the investigation. Macinus, who served as interpreter for the Times, runs Hyannis nonprofit Health Ministry USA. He said Costa Silva was well-known locally and that his death has devastated the close-knit Brazilian community on Cape Cod. Health Ministry USA has organized to help the family and to connect another passenger who was in the van with walkers and crutches as they recover, he said. He was such a great man who has two wonderful teenagers here with him, and he came to this country with the intent, the American dream, said Messinas. New base camp land cleared in Yarmouth for Eversource Storm Cruise by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline, West Yarmouth. When another nor'easter or major storm hits Cape Cod, Eversource Energy plans to have equipment and manpower centralized in a new staging area on Willow Street. The company is designating an approximately four-acre emergency staging lot for crews and equipment on their Yarmouth property. Eversource spokesman Christopher McKinnon said, It will supplement existing staging area agreements they have with other partners on Cape Cod. This new lot will give us the flexibility to stage approximately 100 line trucks and other equipment, or to set up a temporary base camp where crews can eat, sleep, refuel, and continue their important restoration work, McKinnon wrote in an email to the Times. Eversource's electric service in Massachusetts includes 140 towns, including all of Cape Cod, according to the company's website. The company got a permit for clearing land on their property at 484 Willow Street, according to Yarmouth Deputy Building Commissioner Tim Sears. Eversource provides services to customers in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Hampshire, but it calls in trucks and crews from other states to deal with big storms. In the past, Eversource trucks and crews have been scattered in parking lots across the region. But those lots haven't always been fully available because of construction, event usage, and other reasons. In recent years, the company has brought in about 700 line workers and 350 bucket trucks for Cape Cod storm restoration, according to McKinnon. That number doesn't include additional support personnel and tree crews from other companies. All Eversource's essential workers were on the clock, and more than 400 crews from other states showed up to help for a December 22 storm response. That storm brought heavy winds and more than three inches of rain to the Cape. Winds usually cause the most damage to power lines. Conservation Commission An army of crews and their vehicles were stationed at parking lots at the Cape Cod Mall in Hyannis and several other locations across the Cape. A centralized location will make for more streamlined operations, according to Amanda Houle, a senior environmental scientist with Tig and Bond, who presented the lot plan for approval in June before the Yarmouth Conservation Commission. Houle answered questions about the lot boundaries, the creation of a stormwater basin, and management plan before the commission would approve the plan. The commission approved an 800-square-foot stormwater management basin at that meeting. The Yarmouth permit allows for clearing an area only. 
Eversource does not plan to build any permanent structures on the lot at this time, McKinnon said. Eversource owner NSTAR owns a 16,000-square-foot office building, a 32,000-square-foot warehouse, and 7,600-square-foot repair shop at 484 Willow Street. The buildings and 31.55 acres are assessed at $3.83 million, according to town records. Steldwagon Visitor Center comes closer to reality in Provincetown by Heather McCarran of the Cape Cod Times. Plans for building a visitor center for the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary in Provincetown took a giant leap closer to reality this week after the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration pledged a hefty sum towards its construction. The federal agency, which manages the 842-square-mile underwater reserve, stretching from Jeffrey's Ledge off Cape Ann to Race Point Channel off Cape Cod, on Tuesday announced it's investing $15 million from the Inflation Reduction Act to build the state-of-the-art center. While it won't cover the entire estimated cost of the center, NOAA Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary Superintendent Peter DeCola said it's a welcome financial boost. We're super excited about this project between us the town, and the Center for Coastal Studies, he said, explaining the three entities are working together with Uden Ello Architecture and the Stellwagen Visitor Center Community Advisory Committee to design, build, and operate the Visitor Center. The proposal for a Sanctuary Visitor Center in Provincetown was unveiled in August of 2016. Since then, the plan has become more concrete, and a location off Ryder Street Extension next to McMillan Pier, and incorporating part of the municipal parking lot there, has been selected as the site. According to the town, it's anticipated to make improvements to the adjacent transportation area, public restrooms, and create new outdoor public spaces and exhibits. It's the best location possible as a gateway going out to the sanctuary via the whale-watching boats that are on the pier, said Decola. And if you're coming into Provincetown from other locations, like Boston and Plymouth on the ferries, it's a gateway to the town. He said the visitor center is planned right along where the artist trap sheds are. A concept design was done in 2021. At the time, the total cost for the center was estimated at $21 million. Since then, DeCola said, he imagines the price has increased. The $15 million for NOAA, he said, is going to give us a really good start and will pay for a good part of the center. Next steps include doing more in-depth design and architectural work and figuring out how to close the financing gap. We'll find ways to make things happen and apply for grants, DeCola said. We've got to deal with the technical aspects of transferring the NOAA money to the town and then getting our project team ramped up. Over the past seven years, he said, the sanctuary and its partners have been sure to garner input from the community. We've been working very closely with the town, the Center for Coastal Studies, and the community to make sure our visitor center will fit in seamlessly with the town, DeCola said, considering everything from the outward appearance of the building to the direction it will face. We want to make it look like we've been there for 100 years. The sanctuary was designated in 1992 as part of the National Marine Sanctuaries System. It's the only marine sanctuary in the Northeast, Decola said, but it's never had a dedicated visitor center. 
The closest it comes to that is a small space in the situate office building where the sanctuary is headquartered. Otherwise, its presence is recognized in various places only by informational kiosks, small exhibits, and signs. We're really looking forward to having this visitor center provide us with a sense of place and to connect us with the public, he said. This is a place where people can go to and see what's out there. They can make a decision. Hey, this is great. I'm going to go out to the sanctuary on a whale watch boat. Or if they just got back from a whale watch and they want to learn more. The visitor center will feature interactive exhibits on the natural history and cultural heritage of the region and the sanctuary area, as well as provide community meeting space. The sanctuary will partner with the town and the Center for Coastal Studies to advance awareness, understanding, and appreciation of the marine ecosystems of Stellwagen Bank. Besides serving as a protected habitat for marine life, the sanctuary is also a place where a lot of research is taking place. For instance, sanctuary scientists just finished this season's whale tagging program. We put data tags on them to see how they behave underwater, Decola explained. He said they've learned all sorts of interesting things, like in the case of humpbacks, how they feed at the bottom, how they communicate, and how they cooperate to create bubble necks to capture sand eels and fish. Understanding how whales communicate can, in turn, inform management policies, such as regulating acoustic impacts within the sanctuary. It's been an amazing year. There's a lot of whales out there, Decola said. Sanctuary scientists are also tracking seabirds on their migration patterns. Right now, they're tracking 22 individuals. It's amazing because they travel all the way from Stellwagen across the Atlantic and then down to the South Atlantic, where they spend time nesting in the remote areas of Patagonia. Decola is uncertain of the timeline for the visitor center at this point, but is hopeful it can be up and running in the next few years. I really feel confident this design is good, he said, and I feel really good about the work so far. We've reached the halfway point of our program, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. There is one obituary in the paper today, and it is for Angela Butler, Dateline East Dennis. Angela was born in Boston, grew up in Walpole, and moved to Cape Cod in 1994. She was the beloved daughter of Paul and Elizabeth Cannon Butler of East Dentist, sister of Jennifer and dear auntie to Jim, Tim, and Sarah Rose, all of West Ossipee, New Hampshire. She is also survived by many aunts, uncles, and cousins. Angela participated in the Special Olympics, enjoyed music, dancing, bingo, coloring, and being part of the various programs at Capabilities. In 2010, she reached her goal of living on her own in her forever home, an environment where she blossomed and met her best friend, Kim, where she had an incredible, caring, and dedicated staff. She was fortunate to take part in an early intervention program that planted the seeds for her lifetime of achievements and growth. We all learned early on that continuity and consistency was the key to Angela's many successes. Angela was blessed with wonderful special educators and dedicated direct care professionals who helped her mature into a caring adult. She received amazing health care from Joseph Gold, MD, and Marilyn Gordon, MD. Angela's family wishes to express their heartfelt gratitude to Fidelis Hospice, Capabilities, Cape and Islands DDS, as well as her absolutely amazing staff at Forward Suite A that truly enriched Angela's quality of life. Please remember Angela by smiling and being happy. 
a funeral mass will be celebrated at Our Lady of the Cape on Stony Brook Road in Brewster, Monday, August 7th at 11 a.m. Angela's burial at Massachusetts National Cemetery will be private. Returning to the news, our next article is headlined, Pilot's Medical Clearance Renewed a Month Before Crash Landing, by the Associated Press, Dateline, Boston. A woman who crash-landed her 79-year-old husband's plane on Martha's Vineyard reported that he became incapacitated behind the controls a month after his Federal Aviation Administration medical certificate had been updated, investigators said Wednesday. Randolph Bonnest of Norwalk, Connecticut, previously had to provide extensive medical documentation to continue flying after some sort of health concern, the National Transportation Safety Board said in a preliminary report. His wife reported that Bonnest blacked out after performing a go-around maneuver while on approach to the airport on the island, and she said there were no mechanical issues whatsoever with the single-engine airplane, the NTSB said. The Piper PA-46, without its landing gear in position, bounced several times before coming to rest upright on July 15th. Bonnus died five days later at a Boston hospital. His wife was unhurt. Bonnest held a third-class medical certificate from the FAA that was issued on June 1st, and he was previously granted a special issuance medical certificate that required extra documentation, the NTSB said. The Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Parent Wants to Give Money as Gift but Fears Son-in-Law Will Squander It. Dear Carolyn, I've decided to give a sizable cash gift to each of my children and their spouses each year. My son and daughter-in-law have already told me what they're going to spend the money on, house repairs, paying off their car, etc. My concern is with my daughter and her new husband. They're both teachers in their late 30s. He has a history of overspending. Apparently, it runs in his family. He had a lot of debt when they met, and my daughter helped him navigate paying down loans, credit cards, etc. She has shared all of this with me. She said he still likes to spend on frivolous things. They are expecting. I was unhappily surprised when I asked about summer plans, and they're just taking it easy with no plans to earn extra money. I don't want to attach any strings to this money, but I can't stop thinking about him using it unwisely. What do you think about my asking my daughter how they plan to use the money? Or should I just get over it and let them handle it? Signed, Concerned. Dear Concerned, there are lots of options in between butting into their business and enabling their business. You could give them some of the money in trust, for example, both couples to avoid a judgy look. You could set up an education savings account, one you control, for your coming grandchild. These may seem like strings, but they're darn generous ones and smart. I like this one best. Since your daughter shared his history with you, you can talk to her about what she would prefer. Not in a controlly tisk at your unwise spending way, but in a way that acknowledges a reality your daughter has managed responsibly and trusted you enough to share. Tell her you're mindful of how hard she and her husband have worked on excess spending and debt, and therefore want her input on this gift. Specifically, say you don't want to put her in a bad spot with a windfall, but you also don't want to interfere or attach strings. Encourage her to give it some thought and come back to you with ideas. 
and offer her some starter ideas too. An education account for the baby? A trust that pays out over time? The main element of the right answer here, whatever it turns out to be, is not the money or the spending or the husband. It's your relationship with your daughter. If it's a good one, if she shared her financial circumstances with you freely in the spirit of openness and entrusting search of support, then you're in a position to say credibly that you're asking for her input on her behalf. Because that's what it would be. Handing an addict a huge dose of fill-in-the-blank about a problematic substance has given us a rich library of outcomes to learn from. Giving your daughter a chance to act on others' experiences instead of gaining her own the hard way is itself a sizable gift. It's the first Friday of the month, and so next we have award-winning columnist Sara Lee Peril, who lives in Marston's Mills, column. Today, it's headlined, Secrets of Being a Dog Mom of Two and Cat Mom of Three. In spite of your dog's innocent, I-didn't-do-it expression, you can tell when your pup is feeling guilty, can't you? I mean, does your dog just about give himself away when he's done something wrong? My dog, Benny, actually confesses. He drops his stuffed bunny's torn-off head into my hand. I'm pretty sure that you and I are alike when it comes to our dog family. We know what they're thinking. We know what they're trying to say. I imagine you and I are also alike when it comes to seeing a story on TV about an injured or abused dog. We either look away, mute the sound, or change the channel. Today, I caught Benny digging a hole in our backyard that could have held all four tops in it. My problem is not so much that he digs. I want him to have fun. It's just that he's dug so many holes, my landscape looks like the surface of the moon. There's nary a day I don't tumble into a crater. Now, he knows he's not supposed to dig. So I said, Benny, what have you done? He could tell by my tone he was in the doghouse. He cringed, then squinted his eyes shut as if I was going to smash him with a sledgehammer. He refused to look at me and hung his head in shame. You know what I mean, the same fake shtick your dog tries to pull. Perhaps yours is over-the-top melodramatic like mine. When I even whisper the word no, Benny starts his I-don't-deserve-to-live routine. When I say no to my other dog, Mendel, he lays the guilt on thick. Remember, I'm going to die someday. So while Benny, whose face was covered in fresh dirt, was pretending to feel remorse today, I figured he was saying, it wasn't me. Well, who was it then? Mrs. Snowhead Bunny? Benny is the follower. Mendel does the plotting. Benny is not way up there when it comes to smarts. In the three years since I adopted the lovable little runt, he hasn't learned his name. He is clueless as to who my husband, his father, Bob, is, and goes into an insane screeching roar whenever Bob comes into the room. I picked him up, he's little, and brought him into the house where I banished him to the bedroom. That was when Mendel, his brother in crime, came trotting into the kitchen where I was standing. He carped, I need a real treat, not the dog crapola dreck, which is Yiddish for manure, you keep giving us. 
Now, this clever dog plots out ways to get Benny in trouble. Between the two of them, Mendel is the brains and Benny is the brawn. I'm sure that Mendel goaded Benny into the archaeological expedition out back. Mendel, let's surprise Mom and make her a swimming pool. You start. Naive Benny falls for this stuff every single time. From the kitchen, I heard our three cats howling during one of their, Mom, a mouse, and there's a chance we'll eat it, tantrums. Now, when it comes to mice, I no longer support male-female equality. Mouse eviction is a man's job. Oh, Bob, I'll call out with a Scarlet O'Hara drawl. Coyly, I'll sing out, I do declare that as God is my witness, there's a critter on the loose right here in Tara. Now be a man and make everything better. Bob loves me deeply, so he does do the mouse work, but he won't kill a mouse. He takes houseflies outside, seriously. He'll put gumdrops as bait into a have-a-heart trap that captures creatures alive. Both dogs decided to chase the howling cats, who were, of course, chasing the mouse, who tried racing into his very own, yes, he's done this before, one millionth of an inch hole, at which point Bob chased the whole shrieking posse with a gumdrop in his hand. The mouse made it to his microscopic den. Bob got the have-a-heart. Now, don't get me wrong about Mendel's scheming ways. Although he likes to set Benny up as the fall dog or guy, he's a wonderful mutt. He adores me as I adore him. His whole solar system revolves around me. He and I sleep with the entire length of our bodies against each other. So we're inseparable in many ways. He's smart. Without me saying a word, he stays when my palm's out. He sits when I point upward and lays down when I point downward. He'd let a hot dog drop from between his clenched teeth if I so much as whisper, leave it. Mendel will back up and wait his turn when I hold up a treat and say, this one's for Benny. I must tell you, though, my heart aches for Benny. As you can see, there are photos with the newspaper article. He's no Denzel, my vote for the world's most handsome human being. Benny's always on the bottom of the dog hierarchy ladder, not because of Mendel, but because he thinks he's not worthy of a higher position or praise or love or even living in a real home. Benny is terrified of my cane or any stick-like object. Originally, he was found roaming the streets of rural Texas, eating whatever he could find on the roads or in garbage cans. His panic at even the slightest movement of my cane tells me he was beaten with sticks. What Benny lacks in brains is made up for by what he has in his heart. He lives and breathes for me, my touch, my voice, my presence. Every time he so much as looks at me, he wags his tail in bliss. Who does this? I hurt when I think of Mendel's past. He lived with a family in a big house in Alabama. But when the people moved away, they left Mendel behind to fend for himself. Abandoned, all alone, with no provisions. No food or water was left out. Nothing. No furniture, no beds. The rescue organization found him cowering on the hard floor by a fireplace. Sometimes I could scream. Sometimes I just cry. I mean, who does this? But it all worked out. 
Benny and Mendel get along so perfectly, they're like peanut butter and coffee ice cream. I bet like me, you love your dog as much as you love your human family. My beloved dogs believe that the sun rises and sets on me. Their day begins with me and ends with me. And what do they mean in my heart of hearts? The same as your dog means to you. Everything. The Best Bets column today is headlined, Try a Free Guided Hike or Guided Bird Watching Walk at Sandy Neck by Amber May Rivard of Cape Cod Times. If you're thinking about blueberry jam, you'll want to read on. At the height of the season comes Greenbrier Jam Kitchen's annual Blueberry Day. Have a blueberry treat and taste some jam all while seeing how it's made. You can also get your sample on at the Chatham Summer Craft Festival while you browse the work of 55 artisans. Don't forget to include some wellness in your plans with a free guided hike at Sandy Neck. Isaac Boots may have left Cape Cod, but his workouts can be done from the comfort of your home. First up, Great Music on Sundays at 5 brings you harmonies across cultures. This one has been guaranteed to be a memorable experience for all music lovers and those trying to expand their musical horizons. The night will consist of a broad range of genres and styles. You guessed it, starting at 5 p.m. on August 6th at the Unitarian Universalist Meeting House at Provincetown on Commercial Street. Admission, including the service fee, for seniors is about $23, general admission about $28, and limited priority seating at about $54. For more information, visit the group's website. A day dedicated to the blueberry at the Greenbrier Jam Kitchen. This annual blueberry event comes during the height of the season. Yum! Enjoy a sweet blueberry treat while you watch a demonstration of old-fashioned blueberry jam being made. And yes, there will be jam sampling. This tasty day will cost you $8.00 and will take place from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on August 12th at the Greenbrier Nature Center and Jam Kitchen on Discovery Hill Road in East Sandwich. You can also look at the exhibits located in the Thornton W. Burgess Gallery and take a walk along the paths of the Wildflower Garden and Smiling Pool Pond. Family Storytime will be offered at 11.30 and 1 p.m. by Kelly Carey. For tickets and more information, visit the Jam Kitchen's website. The Kid on a Presidential Grave Hunting Mission At the age of eight, Kurt Dion asked his father if he would take him to every U.S. president and vice president's grave site, and the rest is history. He got what he asked for and more. Dion wrote a book called Presidential Grave Hunter, One Kid's Quest to Visit the Tombs of Every President and Vice President, about the journey he completed. At 4 p.m. on August 7th, Dion will have a book talk at the JFK Hyannis Museum on Main Street. The event is free. Along the way, Dion has been purposefully locked in a cemetery with barbed wire, gained forbidden access to a vice president's private burial ground, and more. For more information, visit the museum's website. Broadway star Melissa Errico takes Provincetown. Tony Award-nominated Melissa Errico is ecstatic to be back in Provincetown. Errico is known for her roles in Broadway performances, including High Society, Les Miserables, and Dracula, and her personal connection with Stephen Sondheim. 
Erico will be in Provincetown for a two-night-only concert at 6 p.m. on August 10th and 11th, while her longtime friend Seth Rodusky takes to the piano. Ticket price, including the service fee, is $81 for general seating and $107 for VIP. These concerts come after her last two shows in Paris were sold out. Chatham Summer Craft Festival is pet-friendly. Bring your billfold and your love for arts and crafts. 55 selected artisans will have their work displayed and sold at the Chatham Summer Craft Festival. Crafts include coastal photography, fine jewelry, blown glass, nautical signs, resin art, pet gifts, charcuterie boards, organic bath products, and more. Admission is free. This two-day event will start at 10 a.m. and run until 5 p.m. on August 5th and 10 to 4 on August 6th at the Chatham Community Center lawn on Main Street. Make sure to have your furry friends on a leash and try special samples including jams, jellies, spices, oils, and more. Rain or shine, this event will carry on. Are you up for the challenge? Since Barnstable Trust and Cape Cod Hospital have partnered to host the Hike Barnstable Challenge, a slew of healthy outdoor activities are heading our way. You can take a free guided hike for one and a half miles along the Great Marsh and sand dunes while exploring the barrier beach flora and fauna. Starting at 10 a.m., it goes until 11.30 on August 9th. You'll also learn about the precautions taken to protect and restore sensitive natural communities along the way. Pre-registration is encouraged and parking is limited. Make sure to wear hiking boots to walk over the sand and uneven terrain. Enjoy cocktails and support a good cause. The Castle Hill Live and Silent Auction is here for one day only. A few of the artists' artwork up for grabs include those by Brenda Goodman, Joan Snyder, Selena Treef, and Joyce Johnson. The auction will run from 6 to 10 p.m. on August 5th at 10 Meeting House Road. Admission is $20 in advance and $25 on the day of the event. There will also be 20 hand-thrown platters that were painted by well-known artists. The artwork price is listed lower than the valued price, and a cash bar will be serving martinis, cosmos, beer, and wine. Cape Cod gets sneak preview of Harold Lopez Nusa's Latin Jazz Album by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Harold Lopez Nusa, a Cuban jazz pianist and composer, returns to the Payamet Performing Arts Center on Saturday, August 5th, debuting his newest album, Timba La Americana. His latest album, set to release on August 25th, is his first under Blue Note Records, the famous jazz label that was home to the likes of Miles Davis, Art Blakey, and John Coltrane, and 10th in his discography. If you're into Latin jazz, you may have heard of Harold Lopez Nusa before. But if you haven't, Lopez Nusa is a Latin jazz pianist and composer from Havana, Cuba. I chatted with Lopez Nusa over the phone to discuss his upcoming show and album. Who is Harold Lopez Nusa? His mother was a piano teacher, his father was a drummer, his uncle was a jazz pianist, and his grandmother could also play piano. So it was no surprise when he started studying music, given his family's talent. From the very beginning, I was studying in school classical music, because this is where we start in Cuba in the conservatory, he said. 
But in his early 20s, Lopez Nusa was on the hunt for a different genre to invigorate him and found his calling in Latin jazz. I was trying to play a little bit of Cuban music and jazz, he said. And I started trying at that point, and it became a passion. Jazz and all the freedom that you can feel when you're playing jazz that I didn't find in the classical music. Now, all these years later, he still feels that passion as he takes the stage night after night, describing jazz like playing an unpredictable and therefore exciting game. You don't know exactly what will happen, he said. It's like playing a game for me every night. Timba la Americana, what's it all about? Timba la Americana was born from Lopez Nusa's experience moving to France from Cuba. The album speaks to his homesickness, yet excitement surrounding this new chapter in his life. Songs like Mal de Pays, which translates from French to homesickness, express the melancholy that comes with leaving your home. Others, like Afro en Toulouse, show his anticipation for what's to come, giving a nod to his new home of Toulouse. The decision to move to France was a personal one for Lopez Nusa, as his grandmother was French and immigrated to Cuba. We want to connect with this kind of tradition of my grandma's side, and I want, I have two daughters, I want my daughters to connect with the French culture, he said. Beautiful country with a lot of culture, with great food, of course great wine, and a lot of our conversation about jazz and about Latin jazz and Cuban music. Signing with Blue Note Records and creating the album. Before production began on La Timba La Americana, Lopez Nusa knew it would be released under Blue Note Records, as he had been talking with Don Was, the president of Blue Note, for years about being a new signing for the label. I got a good connection with him, he said. He's a musician, an active musician, so he knows how it is to be a musician. When he first approached me to show me some interest about signing me, I was like, wow, that's a big deal. And it's still a big deal for me. The process of creating the album took about a year, beginning with a meeting in Barcelona with Waz, Michael League, producer of the album, and the bassist of Snarky Puppy, a jazz fusion band, and ending with the album's release. We spent like two days together in Michael's house. It was great just to speak with those guys about music and having great food and good wine, Lopez Nusa said. Performing at Payamet. Lopez Nusa will celebrate a milestone in his career with an audience he's grown fond of over the years. It's one of my favorite places because of the people, he said. Every time we play there, the audience is magnificent. It's an area that I love. I love food over there. I love the beaches. The mood all around is amazing. I look forward to being there and playing again. The love is reciprocated on the Cape, said Payamet Executive Artistic Director Kevin Rice. We present a lot of jazz, a lot of great jazz artists, and we have a deep appreciation for Harold, Rice said. He's one of the few instrumentalists that we've actually had a number of times. This is probably the sixth appearance here at Payamet over the last 10 or 12 years. It's a special thing for Rice to be a part of this occasion, given the relationship they've formed over the years. It also shows the prowess Payamet has curated, he said. It means that we're in good company, Rice said. We have a lot of artists that are at Blue Note or at Birdland, two of the great venues in New York. There's a degree of cachet or stature, being able to present someone. 
It just shows that we've become a destination for many artists and we have a really good reputation. As for the atmosphere, Rice said audiences can expect to be transported into a jazz club setting. It's just, it's a beautiful thing to walk into a room that's very attractive, he said. It's got a great backdrop, baby grand piano, and there you go. It's Cuban music. Ours just lights up the room. Lopez Nusa will take the stage on the Payamet Performing Arts Center on August 5th. Tickets are $30 to $35, and the show starts at 7 p.m., with doors opening at 6. Seats are general admission. Reserve tickets and pick up at the will call window. Be sure to arrive early to get your tickets and a good seat. With beaches, ponds, and piers, Cape Cod is a sport fishing paradise by George Costinas, special to the Cape Cod Times. Casting off the beach, waiting to feel the tug, and then pulling in a big striped bass or bluefish is one of the relaxing and thrilling highlights of a summer vacation on Cape Cod. With Nantucket Sound on one side and Cape Cod Bay on the other, you have a good chance of hauling in that big one in just about any place on Cape Cod. One of the most popular faces to places to fish is the Upper Cape along the Cape Cod Canal. There's plenty of free parking, and by all accounts from local fishermen and the owners of the bait and tackle shops, the fishing is good. Here are a few ideas for Falmouth Sandwich, Bourne and Mashpee. In that area at Eastman Sport and Tackle in Falmouth, a recreational fisherman can rent a rod and reel with the appropriate tackle for $15 a day, with an additional cost for bait and lures, said Evan Eastman, the owner. Forestdale Bait and Tackle and Sandwich doesn't rent equipment, but sells rod and reel combos for as low as $50, ranging up to $200, according to the manager, Sean Cahoon. At Canal Bait and Tackle in Bourne, combos can be purchased for $79 to $100, said shop owner Bruce Miller. Besides the canal, there are several salt ponds in the area, such as Bourne Pond, Green Pond, and Eel Pond, that are very popular, said Eastman. He also recommended Falmouth Harbor, Wacoit Bay, and Papanasset Beach in Mashpee. Other popular spots include Old Silver Beach, Bristol Beach, and Falmouth Heights Beach, Eastman said. In Sandwich, anglers like to try their luck at Sandy Neck Beach. Every year is different. You don't see a lot of fish until May and June, Eastman said. May through August, striped bass and bluefin tuna are the fish to catch on Cape Cod. And from June to September, the catch is mostly bluefish and flounder. However, that can change as the summer temperature changes. Lee Boisvert, owner of the Riverview Bait and Tackle Shop in South Yarmouth, said striped bass and other bigger fish, like the hard-to-catch bluefin tuna, run in May when the weather is cooler. By mid to late June, the bigger fish aren't in the warmer water, said Boisvert. In the middle of summer, scup, sea bass, and fluke, the bottom-feeding bait feeders, are more likely to be caught. Later in September and October, the bigger fish come back when the water is cooler, said Christian Cook at Sportsport in Hyannis. And typically, dawn and dusk are the best times of the day to fish. The larger fish generally go for mackerel and herring, while the smaller bottom feeders go for squid, clams, and sea worms. Basically, that rule of thumb is true throughout the Cape and along most of the eastern seaboard, according to Boisvert and others. To fish off the beaches, a license is required and easy to obtain online or by mail and even by cell phone at the marine, fish at mass.gov, and accessing the Mass Fish Hunt Portal, 
the website will walk you through getting your permit. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.